0: Shaquille Chaudhry, award-winning educator, a meditator, and a skilled diversity trainer, whose book wonderful book Deep Diversity, probes far more deeply and compassionately into diversity issues than does anything else I've read. He brings together the best of social and psychological research with spiritual sensitivity and discernment to reveal how and why we discriminate and how we can most effectively recognize and heal our individual and cultural biases. Powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co host is John Dupuis, the founder and CEO of iAwake Technologies, which makes the beautiful meditation music supports. And our guest today is someone who has made major contributions to one of the great issues of our time namely racism and diversity. And this is Shaquille Chaudhry, who has authored the wonderful book, Deep Diversity, A Compassionate Scientific Approach to Achieving Racial Justice. Shaquille is an award-winning educator, a consultant, and the author of this book, which truly has been transformative for me, Like many of us, I've tried to get an education on racism and diversity and prejudice. But this book, more than any other, has touched me and I hope begun to transform me. It's a beautiful, sensitive book imbued with the meditative sensitivity that comes from Shaquille's deep contemplative practices and many years in this issue. Shaquille, welcome, and maybe you could tell us how you came to create this specific approach to diversity and racial racial issues, which you call Deep Diversity, which really brings a lot of things together.
2: Well, thanks for having me here, Roger and John. It's lovely to be in conversation with you. So the book Deep Diversity really comes from my own history, my own background, in my Early to mid-20s, I was a community organizer, a, a racial justice activist, and my main area was training and education because I was professionally trained as a teacher. So my passion was racial justice and equity. And so I spent a lot of time teaching and I taught things the way that I had been taught in the field of anti-racism and anti-oppression, which is where my training comes from, and my story is not uncommon because after about a half a dozen years of community organizing and activism, I burnt out. And that burnout, I I walked away from everything. It was just my relationships were in tatters. Everything was fraying. I felt frayed. I didn't feel connected. I was feeling disappointed by so many things. So I just, I, I walked away. And at that stage, embarked on started for the first time really looking at myself and starting to take the first steps in my healing journey, a journey that still continues today. And in doing that work, I realized that that as I started doing my inner work, as I started doing my healing work, remarkably, the world started to look different. And, and I think that that's a classic, almost cliched Process in which, you know, when we go internally, the world doesn't change, but our view of the world changes and our perspective on the world changes. And so, what I started feeling was more free. I was started to feel more like I wasn't just being pushed by the waves that I had no control over, but I had choice in the matter. And as I started finding some of that internal freedom, I also realized that I this wasn't a conversation that was happening inside the racial justice community. This wasn't a conversation. I'm talking, you know, in the, in in right around the new millennium, right around the early two thousands, right around nine 11, this wasn't much of a conversation that was happening. And there was so much urgency, something that I felt as well in the work. There's so much urgency. There's so much pain that there's no time to reflect there's no time to do anything except do the work and what i what i started realizing was that i can't do the external work until i do the internal work or not until but that that's a simultaneous process that i have to be doing my inner work in order to be more effective in in the work in the in the outside world whatever that world whatever that work might be and for me that was racial justice and equity so in doing that deep diversity started emerging. I didn't have a a name for it. I just knew that the racial justice work I started doing started integrating more of the emotional, more of the psychological. Whereas before it predominantly my worldview and the worldview of most people that are involved in racial justice and equity work, anti-racism, anti-oppression really comes from a deeply historical perspective and sociological perspective. And those are really important because they help us understand the impact of history. They help us understand sociology today, how we got into this mess and how the realities from the past are still echoing today in different ways, whether you're looking at anti-slavery or the slavery of African-Americans, Black codes through to the over-criminalization of Black communities today. So these historical and contemporary things, those are really important perspectives. But that might help us understand how we got here and what the problems are today, but it doesn't help us understand why people do what they do. And it's why understanding why people do what they do, that we're not linear, that our psychology is completely not linear <laughs> and, and healing is not linear and and why people do the things that we do. None of that is like, we're just not logical creatures. And so, so for me, you know, starting to integrate that meant that I was also bringing more compassion to the world. So I'm, I could see myself in the very things I'm trying to fix in a way that I couldn't before, before I was either a victim or a rescuer in the dynamic But now I could also see myself as a perpetrator at times. I could see myself beyond victim, perpetrator, and rescuer. Like there's just ways in which it just got more complicated. And the more I looked, the messier it became. And so deep diversity evolved like that. It started integrating the emotional and psychological over time, the neuroscience, the neurobiology that's underlying humans and why we do what we do. All of that has been part of that. And of course, because I work inside organizations, Looking at organizational change processes, how people change, systems change, and then probably the part that came at the more recently in the last half dozen years has really been looking at how trauma integrates into the work. So deep diversity is, is an evolution of me, and and that's what the concept, that's what the framework is, and it looks at the unconscious role of four areas the unconscious role of emotions, the unconscious role of bias, the unconscious role of identity, the unconscious role of power. And and what's important about all four of those things is that, you know, a small part of them is at the cognitive or visible level, and most of it is unconscious. And so as we all know, that which is hidden has more uh, power, that which we can't see has more influence, but we can identify something when we can name it, we can also tame it. And so, so much of the work around of creating justice requires us to be more multifaceted, to be interdisciplinary. And before I didn't realize how narrow my perspective was when I was doing justice work. And over time, it's evolved. And I would hope the deep diversity keeps evolving as I learn more and as I am exposed to more. So maybe that's, I'll pause there. That's kind of a an entry point as to how I got, how the the work evolved to what it is today. And that's a 20, 25 year journey.
0: And uh, such a beautiful journey. And in some ways, emblematic of these stories, as you implied, of a lot of activists, that we in our time face so many major challenges to our societies, our individual and collective well-being, even even the very survival as a species, and it, it does imbue a sense of urgency, as you said. And one of the casualties, it seems, and which you implied, is that that urgency can lead to a frenetic focus on the external, a neglect of our own well-being, and perhaps even just as importantly, the neglect of the nurturing of our own capacities, emotional, psychological, contemplative, etc., that are often portrayed in the activist movement as self-indulgence, a distraction from, quotes, the work. And yet what you beautifully portray in your own experience and in your writing in your book, Deep Diversity, is that those years of inner work, of reflection, of emotional sensitivity, of meditation, etc., have enabled you to come back to your work in a more effective, encompassing, holistic, and beneficial way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, and if I can add a little at this point, Shaquille, this is a really, really important issue for me. And I have been struggling with it in my whole life. When I was four years old, my family moved to Mexico, Southern Mexico, and most people didn't look like me. So I became very aware of their differences. It's It's been a journey, but when I was finishing graduate school, the last class I took was culture diversity. And I was just kind of thrown at the end. I had to do it to graduate. And it turned out to be the most powerful class <laughs> that I'd had, it just blew my my heart open, and and I I wept a lot during. I was very very moved, and there was this man who's running it, and his name was Harrison, and he had been a a running back in the NFL earlier on in his career, and then he got thrown in jail for domestic violence, and when he came out through that, it broke him open. It mm-hmm. just like right mirror in the face, and he became the most just loving, wise, incredible. Person, and we had found a deep love for each other, and we agreed to to work that I would help him in continuing this work. He was in that was so powerful. And then two weeks after that, he died of a heart attack. You know, so it's like <sighs> so that. But I was ready for that transformation. I just needed somebody to let me know that these lesbian sisters over here, and this black guy over here, and this, you know, the, what it felt like to be them, and. I think the the popular discussion of racism with the advent of wokism, I guess that's the word, has become, besides being annoying, is being really destructive. And I think just a self-righteous finger wagging just makes people more split. And developmentally, there is a stage which in spiral dynamics is called orange or traditionalism, which we all are ethnocentric. OK, at that point in our development, we just because of our, our DNA and having survived as tribes for hundreds, thousands of years, we really care about our own. We can care about 150 people altogether in, as far, in the intimate group and in our life circles. And that is just a given. If that ethnocentrism is has poison poured on it and their whole industries that are pouring gasoline on these natural structures that are within each one of us it can inflame into racism. But I think I think we all have that, that preference of being with our family, our people, our color, our language, our country, all of this kind of built in. And that has to be acknowledged, not as an insulting finger wagging, but this is, this is what served us in our evolutionary journey, but it doesn't serve us anymore. So we have to move on from there. And my concern is that people who are at that level, traditional level, they don't listen to science and studies and logic, that's not how they ascertain knowledge and wisdom. And to speak to them about this subject, and I come from a, a Christian background, you'd have to talk about things. Well, look, Jesus died for everyone, not just for white people. Believe it or not, you know. And so, to insult, you know, to to go against God's children is is a sin against God. It, it's really it's really wrong. It's not what He taught. And when you talk in that way to that that level of people, you begin to find some traction. So I just kind of had to put that out, and 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 I don't have the answers, but but I'm really struggling for it. And and this is all very very personal and very important to me. So thank you for being here.
2: Mm. Thanks so much, John. You know, when you talk right now about strategies about how to reach people, I mean that's that's important. That's always been important. How do you act? How do you get people to understand? So that's been a, that's been something that's been on my mind for almost three decades now is how do we get people? And I've done, I've taught things in different ways. I've taught things a way that I, that I had learned and know the strengths of it and the weaknesses of it. And then I evolved things and I've changed things and I've, you know, I'm at a point in my work where, My goal is to get more and more people onto the side of justice. And given how polarized and political the times are, it's even more essential and it's harder, but it's more essential to get more people onto the side of 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 justice. And and I am. I'm a pragmatist and I'm also an educator. So I'm like, get people on board in whatever way you can. So whether it's through the the Christian tradition to speak to Christians and it frames them and it opens up something, it opens up empathy, it opens up connection. Great. I work inside organizations and I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm trying to move things into into a place that is the most accessible for the most number of people. So someone recently started describing my approach when they were saying, it's really interesting, you are agnosticizing the work in racial justice and equity. And I was like, that's really interesting. That's an interesting framing. So let me explain what I mean by that. So so I think, and what I know from my work, is that racism is a systemic problem, Okay. When we mean by a systemic problem, it means that you know, it's more than overt hate crimes. It's more than the KKK and neo-nazis. It's much more than that. See, when we're looking at racism in its overt forms, for example, that's an easier conversation because you're just looking for the overt bigot, right? Like spot the bigot is the game. It's easy when that's the case. But when you're dealing about systemic, it's much more complicated because in today's organizations, there's few bigots to be found. So how can racism be perpetuated when you have an absence of bigots? Well, this is the system. And the system is one in which that kind of racism or sexism, if we're talking about gender, heterosexism or ableism, those things become visible when we collect data and look at the experience of thousands of thousands of people. When we do that, then the gaps appear and we can start asking important questions like, wait a minute, why are women earning less than men, whether it's frontline staff to Hollywood starlets? It's when we can start asking the questions of, wait a minute, why is it in healthcare? That white people and people of color, that there's a gap, and people of color are systematically under-treated. And this is this is not just lived experience, this is data. We have decades of data showing this. Why is it that in schools, suspension and expulsion rates have something disproportionately to do with the identity of the student rather than their actual behavior, according to all the research? right? So the system is one in which we quite simply give preference, give value, give higher status to groups of people based on their identity rather than their behavior. And that helps some move forward and hold some back. So that kind of a system implicates all of us. Now, what I want to say is that Racism is a systemic problem, so we have to help leaders and people at large just become systems thinkers. Now, the key to systems thinking is pattern recognition. Can you recognize the pattern? Can you see the relationships between the patterns? Now, pattern recognition, when we start entering it from a systems perspective and from pattern recognition perspective... We now move the conversation from racial justice and equity being not just an urgency project, but we move it towards being a literacy project. Now, why when it becomes a literacy project, it's 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 more tangible and we can do something about it. So, for example, what I mean by literacy is before a word or sorry, a letter turns into a word that turns into a sentence that has meaning, before all of that, it's just a squiggly line. It has no meaning. But it's through good teachers, our our families, loved ones, elders, we learn to decode the language. And the squiggly lines turn into letters. And those letters are different if you are learning English or if you are learning Arabic or Korean. The squiggly lines all have meanings, but if we're learning English, it's a particular set of squiggly lines. Now, We learn how to do that. And it's a little arduous at first, but when we learn and start putting all these things together with repetition and motivation, repetition and motivation, the pattern starts revealing itself and then it becomes a habit. And then we can't stop reading and we've decoded the literacy pattern. Okay. Once we've done that, it becomes automatic. Now, when it comes to things like systemic racism or sexism, it's also a literacy project, except we're looking at behaviors. So if the example I often give is that it is an extremely common sexist micro practice where women tend to be interrupted at meetings more than their male, male counterparts. This is well-established in the lives of women. It's well-established in the in the literature. This is a thing. Now, if a manager doesn't know that's even a thing, when it happens in front of them, it'll register as a squiggly line. It won't have any meaning, okay? And sexism will subtly live on under their watch, and women will be slightly more demoralized, okay? Now, that's a behavioral pattern. We, as good people, and especially in organizations where I where my life is spent, leaders really need to develop the literacy in that area of the behavioral pattern, so they don't keep everything doesn't keep registering as a as a squiggly line, right? So if if leaders don't know that people of color tend to get harsher criticism, inappropriate feedback. If they don't know that those are even two related but separate things, if they don't know that's a pattern, when it happens in front of them again, it will read as a squiggly line. They will do it themselves and find some rationale as to why that might be the right way to go without awareness that that's a thing. So when we can start identifying patterns, that's where it starts becoming agnostic. Because you don't need to absorb a whole anti-racist ideology to care that women are interrupted at meetings more than they are. Or to
1: recognize the behaviors that you might not have
2: seen before. One hundred percent. That's exactly it. So when we do that, given the work that I've done, the thousands and thousands of people and organizations I've been in front of and on the ground work that I do, I am 100% convinced that we are genuinely good as humans. That's, we wanna do the right thing. We just don't always know how. And so this work around diversity, inclusion, racial justice, equity, whatever you wanna call it, is a really tough conversation because, because people in my community, what I'm talking about, which is the racial justice and equity community, We've done an okay job at trying to convince people that there's a problem, but we haven't done much more than try to convince people it's a problem. We haven't actually moved ourselves as a field from a urgency framework to a literacy framework. And as a result, we don't have all of the technology, the social technology, the infrastructure in place to help people embrace this as a literacy project. You know, when I hear things like, well, diversity training doesn't work. I'm like, yeah, but that's also kind of like saying math doesn't work. It's like, no, math is hard. You just have to know how to teach it and you have to teach the right things at the right stages. Literacy reading is hard, but we've learned how to do it. Equally, we need to bring forward a framework And this is what I've been trying to do is to make it easier for people to realize that there's a journey you need to be on. So what I've also talked a lot about is that research shows that to develop English as a second language skills, it requires about 360 hours for an adult of training and practice to achieve a basic level of proficiency. So I'm suggesting that we also use a 360 hour benchmark to achieve a basic level of proficiency around uh, the understanding of systemic systemic racism and sexism and so on. That 360 hours is like doing an hour of learning a day every day for almost a year, or it's the equivalent of 10 36-hour college courses, right? It gives us a stretch goal to move towards. It moves us past this idea that I'm going to learn something once, and then I got it. It's like, no, you're not going to get it. There's no way you can get, just like there's no way you can understand and then apply anything at the early stages of literacy as soon as you see it for the first time. That is just not how learning works for most of humanity. So equally in this area, I'm urging people for the sake of fairness, for the sake of democracy, for the sake of justice, to really move in this direction that says, let's get as many people on board as possible. Let's make it as easy as possible for, for folks to step into this conversation. And what our data shows and my experience shows is that that approach is really giving people more traction. And perhaps that's some of the things that each of you found useful in the book. But when I'm working inside organizations, that's what people are really taking from that is they're entering this in a way that's understanding everything is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And so how do we step into that place of responsibility? That's well said,
0: yeah. And Shakir, what you there's so much in what you said, but as I'm trying to feel into the uh, essence of it, it, was it was wrestling with the question of what are effective interventions? And you implied, and I would want to emphasize that, that this is an empirical question. This is a question to be explored and investigated what which is what you're doing and what your book deep diversity is about and it feels like we're early times yet you you were concerned about people say diversity trainings don't work and you know the research isn't terribly supportive but it looks like a lot of them probably aren't very pedagogically skillful to start with particularly ones which you know emphasize blame and guilt etc on majority groups so you're wrestling with the question of how do we most effectively intervene? How do we begin to change change behavior and specific behavior? And perhaps you could talk about some of the things that you've found that actually work. For example, in your book, you talk about counter stereotypes, deliberately evoking positive associations to people who we might stereotype negatively. So that you've, you have found a, a number of, things that do work. I think that would be really important if you could bring some of those out.
2: Well, let me bring myself more fully into this conversation so that it's not vague. So let me tell you a story. And it's one of the stories I talk about in my book, but it's useful to illustrate the point. So there was a time where I was in an eyewear store looking to get a new pair of glasses and it was a new neighborhood. I was, I found a couple of glasses that I liked and the person behind the desk says, Oh, well, do you have an updated prescription? I said, no, I don't. I actually haven't, I haven't had a, my eyes checked in a while. And they said, well, actually you're in luck. Cause there's a, there is a optometrist down the street that you can get your eyes tested. And here's their business card. And they handed me a plain white, Old school business card with the black text, and it said Abdeso Kianfar, optometrist, and the address and the phone number. Now, that wasn't their real name, but I'm using that name as the illustration. And Abdeso Kianfar. And as soon as I read the name, I hesitated. And in my head, a quick image popped up, and it was of an older foreign, quote-unquote, man in a dark, musty office, and the whole energy around it made me hesitate that image because it said somehow less skilled, untrustworthy, okay? Now, I took, I took the, the, the card, put it in my pocket, said thank you, and went away. Now, although I would immediately notice this and and go through and make the call and had a great interaction with the optometrist. The whole story is in fact about my hesitation. The whole story is actually about that micro moment in which I hesitated at a quote unquote foreign sounding name. Now, one part of me immediately made up rationale. It's 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 the part of us that always rationalizes And the rationalization was I hesitated and that image popped up because, well, it was a plain, unimpressive business card. That's what it just didn't feel the person had put a lot of attention. It wasn't glossy. It it just seemed very plain Jane. It was just, you know, Um, so that was one story. But I also knew that that was a false story as, as quickly as it came up. And I knew that because had that plain, unimpressive business card had a name like Jennifer Goldstein, Jack Wright, I would not have hesitated. So I've trained myself to be on the lookout for my own sketchy, contradictory behavior. That's one of the practices because I understand how biases work. And that hesitation, that moment was my bias showing up. Even though I followed through and made the phone call, it was that that moment. And I've broken that down to a five-minute story, but that micro moment is how our biases all show up. Now, isn't it interesting that I reacted to a quote-unquote foreign-sounding name Basically, a non-white sounding name when my name is Shaquille Chaudhry. So I am the immigration story. My family is the immigration story. And yet I have a negative association with it. Why? Because I've been socialized with a pro-white bias, like the rest of us have predominantly in society. Our biases are not individual problems, they're system problems. And that name, that hesitation, my hesitation is what shows up with names everywhere. Research shows consistently that if you have a resume and make two copies of the same resume, just put a white sounding name on one and a Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, or a African-American sounding name, on the other copy of the same resume, the one with the white-sounding name is 40 to 50 percent higher chance of being called back for an interview. That's the hesitation. That's the system problem. It's not an individual problem. We have absorbed the messages from the society through the sheer process of socialization. But, so but yeah. I was gonna say, Shaquille, this is a
1: a systemic problem. And you know, in 1964, the the civil rights bill and all these things. And you can legislate all these things away. And I think we have that covered. But these are interior individual issues. How do we get to the point? And I think you'll never get rid of that part of you that's an early part of you but if you can continue to grow you'll you'll recognize it when it comes up and just kind of chuckle and dismiss it and and realize where it came from and what it is but you won't be controlled by it anymore and you'll understand and you'll continue to make progress i think that's how interior growth happens in these levels of, of understanding the question is how do we how do we do that individually and i want you to talk about how can we change ourselves individually and then how do we do it seeing it's a largely interior problem. And I have a few ideas uh, things that have worked for me, but I'd like to hear, you know, you say a bit about that, that it won't ever go away. It just won't be, just like when a beautiful woman, I'm straight, I'm a straight white guy, you know, that puts me in, in not a really good category right there. But I try to be a gentleman and not, you know, just let my tongue hang out and, you know, be, a, you know, it's like, although I feel these strong attractions to beautiful females still, I just, come on you know, that's not what we do. And you just hold it inside and move on with your life. And I don't have to act it out or offend or injure somebody through my genetic predisposition to want to breed, you know, with, with the beautiful women, you know, you know, I have to, to learn how to overcome that. So I probably said enough to get myself hung there, but why don't you proceed from that?
2: Well, you know, I think there's just what you've identified in terms of, how men internalize sexist messages that that's some of that changes over time, right? And some of it is well, we can't say that now, and that's a slightly different thing because some of us are like some people might go, well, I can't say those kind of things now, I can't do those kind of things now, and resent it, right? right. And, and some, but some of us are like. I used to say stuff like that, and I don't now because I understand more deeply.
1: And thank God. You're grateful for it. You're not resentful. I mean, that's it's right. a good thing. Yeah.
2: That's right. So, so I think I think that, you know, in terms of the the you know, the thing that you're describing is way more overt. You're aware of that. The thing that I was talking about is the impulse that if you haven't prepared yourself to be on the lookout for it, you will miss it. Because your body is designed to rationalize. Your brain will rationalize. Your feelings will rationalize because it doesn't want you to feel bad. Our bodies are designed to really not make mistakes. Mistake making is hard. So we rationalize away mistakes all the time. So what can you do on an individual level? A, accept that biases are a completely normal part of the human condition. One. One. That that's it's biases and stereotypes aren't the domain of bad people, they're the domain of all people. It's part of how our brains function, it's part of how we perceive, categorize, remember, and learn. That's what biases are. They're just filters. Stereotypes are just categories. Our brain has to use filters and categories, otherwise, we'd be utterly overwhelmed by the millions of pieces of information our brain has to process every second. So, one, recognize that biases are things that Um, are just part of the human condition. Two, recognize that biases we absorb from our environment. That's the system problem. So I'm not inherently a bad person. The way men were socialized for generations to objectify women, uh, as, as you're talking about, John, like we didn't make that stuff up. We were also socialized in that space. So one, whatever I've picked up is from the society around me right? Um, any sexism and that resides within us is, is, is not stuff that just showed up intuitively. It's stuff how we were, it was role modeled for us. It was role modeled in the movies we watched and in, in the adults we were around, the time period was in. So one, so one, biases are normal. Two, our individual expression of biases are from the system, are from the process of socialization. So once we accept those two things, and the third thing is you got to make a plan. You got to be on the lookout for your bias. So for me, I've preloaded into my head: be on the lookout for when my beliefs are contradicted by my actions and reactions, by my words and my feelings. So when I when I tell you that story, if I hadn't already preloaded that into my decision making to have my conscious mind be on the lookout for when my words and actions and reactions contradict my beliefs, I wasn't able to. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I wouldn't be able to tell you the story. So you got to catch yourself in the act of your bias is really important. So acknowledge there's biases. Two, your biases aren't yours. They're from the system. Three, make a plan. And four, catch yourself in the act of bias. This should be like a daily practice for everybody. Okay? Notice when those things happen. The more you become aware of the way the patterns around race and gender play out in society, then you can start looking to see how much is playing out in you. How much is playing out in me? So, so when we do that, then we can, when we catch ourselves in the act, then the next step is to do something about it. Usually doing something about it is some kind of learning. Why, why did I react like that? In the in this particular case, I knew that this was a race and this was a white, non-white name thing that was going on for me. I already knew where that came from. I'm socializing in a white side, but I noticed, wow, that's still coming up for me. So I've got work still to do around pro-white biases and how that plays out. And then the thing is, how do I do it differently next time? Yeah. So that, that's, when you go through those kinds of steps, then you're able to try to do something differently next time. And the last thing that I would say is that the bias that I just reflected is also one other dimension of that is, is also called, for me, it's called internalized racism. Because you see, I I wasn't, even though, you know there's a it's real that we tend to have, we tend to gravitate towards people that are most like us. The exception from that is if we come from minority groups, then there's a really strong possibility that we're not going to be drawn to people most like us. We're actually going to be drawn to people who are most normative, most like the dominant group. So in that case, I wasn't drawn to non-white names in that, in that, in that scenario. I was drawn to white names and and penalized the non-white names. So this is really important. And we also realize that's a nuance that, and this is how that's internalized racism. But this is where women, for example, can have preferences for male bosses, which is what the research shows. Majority of women and men prefer male bosses unconsciously, regardless of what we say consciously. So, So that's ways in which internalized sexism, internalized homophobia, all these different things can happen. So I just want to put that out there.
0: And and Shaquille, you've been talking a lot about the unconscious nature of of bias and the way it plays out and that part of our, our work is to hone ourselves so as to develop a greater sensitivity to picking those biases up as they emerge. There's another aspect that you deal with very beautifully in your book, Deep Diversity, of the ways in which privilege is hidden or unconscious for those of us who have it. I would say for me, this was perhaps the most impactful part of the book, that it your examples really brought home the extent to which those of us who are very privileged, as I am, can protect it, are buffered against the recognition of the ways in which privilege and power differences play out and impact and penalize those who don't have the power and privilege. And so, so for me, this was a a real eye-opener, and the ways in which you talked about rationalization before, the ways in which our adv- advantages the privileged people will attribute our success to our hard work, our initiative, etc., all of which may be partly true, but it's not the only thing. And as you point out, there are millions of people who work hard who never have a chance to to succeed in spite of that. So this feels very important. Love to hear you talk about this aspect
2: so privilege is really complicated it's in such an important educational concept and it makes sense if you understand it but the way it's been manipulated in the political context it's gotten distorted so i appreciate you raising it because it's so important i mean so i think about privilege as like a wind at my back i can be going down the street walking around my bicycle And if there's a wind at my back, I'm just being gently supported through. I don't even know that's, I'm going to be aware that it's fully there, but the person who's walking into the wind definitely feels the wind. And so, so privileges and marginalization is kind of like having our own microclimate wherever we go, there's a certain level of ease or resistance that works with our identities. Now. So, Privilege is like a tailwind, just the wind at your back. Marginalization is if you've got identities that are non-dominant, that you've got more of the headwind. Now, what's really important is that when you start getting this conversation, it's really easy, just as you you said, Roger, for people to start feeling like the conversation is somehow taking away from your hard work. And so what I tell people is that, look, to get, anywhere in society, to get anywhere in life is hard work. It's a journey from A up to B. A to B, it's all uphill, right? If our kids want to graduate from school, it's A to B, it's uphill. Uh, They want to get a job, it's A to B, it's uphill. If they want to get promoted at work, A to B. So everything is hard work. All privilege says is that the conversation about privilege says, well, even though it's an uphill journey. Some of us have more tailwind going up that hill. So for example, for me, I was one of those kids that was fortunate to come from a middle-class family. So when I went to university, I had to have jobs, but those jobs weren't to put food on the table. And like, there was no threat that if I didn't earn, I didn't need to have two or three jobs, unlike some other people. Because I came from a middle class context. So that's privilege at my back. That sense of well, I don't have to fear. If I need some money, I can get it from my parents. Like that was, that's economic privilege. So if I graduate and I get a job and I just think, well, you know, it's because I worked hard, I'm fooling myself because there's other people that worked harder than I did to get to be. And we didn't have the same journey. Someone who's working three jobs just because that's the only way they're able to cover costs and and put food on the table is a different conversation than me in that context, right? So so privilege just says, just think about the fact that other people have, have other challenges. Now, the other part about the privilege conversation also says some people might've worked three, four, five times as hard as everybody else and didn't get to be. And they didn't get to be because the resistance was, the headwind was so intense that it broke their sails. That, that maybe it was mental health issues in their family. Maybe it was having to look after a, a parent or a child. Maybe any number of issues that are, that are happening that make it hard. Maybe it's substance abuse. Any number of things that make it hard. So what, we, what gets lost in society is that we think that whoever's made it to the top who's got a job, who's risen in society, that they're the ones that work the hardest.
0: And what we're just trying to say is, well, no. Stay tuned for part two of our discussion with Dr. Shaquille Chowdhury, in which he dives into the question of how we can train ourselves to recognize and free ourselves from the straitjacket of our biases.
1: Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.